I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Michael Sosko. Michael was the 2017-18 Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year and continues to fight for a healthier democracy and for positive education decisions. His latest book, Flip the System U.S., How Teachers Can Transform Education and Save Democracy outlines a positive vision for how public education can serve as the foundation of a more peaceful, equitable, and inclusive society. He is the recipient of the U.S. Presidential Award for Excellence in Math and Science Teaching and in 2016 was named one of the top 10 teachers in the world. And he was a prize finalist by the late Dr. Stephen Hawking. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, this is great. I'm really excited to have this conversation and especially really dive in uh, to some of those ideas that you've outlined in your new book. But before we do that, can you share a bit more with our audience as we get started? Where do you teach? What are some of the ages? What do you teach? Sure. So I've been a uh, elementary science teacher in northeastern Pennsylvania for the last six years. Before that, I was a fifth grade teacher. Um, uh, I've been teaching for 22 years, and I, I truly believe that students need to own learning and that we need to allow uh, our students to apply what they learn in our classrooms to make the world a better place, uh, both in their local and global communities. You were selected as the Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year, right? There's a lot of teachers in Pennsylvania. I'm one of them. What do you think it was that allowed you to become Teacher of the Year? What I will say is that uh, I am I am humbled because there are so many incredible teachers across the Commonwealth, um, uh, and I've I've been blessed to network with with many of them and learn from so many of them. Uh, and I wasn't on the selection committee, so I'm not exactly positive what it was about me. Uh, but I will tell tell you that I feel an incredible responsibility to make sure that I use this platform to advocate for the things that I know are right for our students and for our colleagues. Uh, and since being selected in 2017. Um, I've tried to use that that platform to um, advocate for a more inclusive, more equitable uh, education system that serves all children uh, and is the basis for a more democratic society. As you think to the number of activities that you've done in the classroom, right, and the list probably goes on and on and on, what what comes to mind 
as an activity or, or maybe two activities that you think have been most helpful in helping students learn? Well, for me, I, I very much believe that, uh, as I mentioned before, children need to, be, uh, need to have ownership uh, over learning. And so I, I teach in a very uh, rural and uh, not very diverse area. Uh, the majority of my students are white. There's not a whole lot of foreign languages or, or other cultures represented uh, in our community. And so since video conferencing became free and relatively easy to use, uh, maybe about a decade ago, maybe a little longer, uh, we've used uh, free video conferencing tools to bring the world uh, to students uh, here in Northeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, we've connected, my students have connected with over 96 different countries, uh, whether it's scientists or um, teachers, other classes that we've collaborated with. Uh, we've talked with national park rangers, uh, with scientists that are doing experiments um, in different locations, um, with astronauts on the International Space Station and uh, researchers in Antarctica studying penguins. Uh, and in each one of those situations, I try to to show my students the application of the learning that's happening in the classroom and encourage them to look for uh, issues and problems that they think they can use their learning to solve. And so through that, we've used the design process. My students have created uh, bridges for communities in uh, rural uh, Kenya. Uh, they worked with a group of students in India to collaborate on a, a campaign to stop child, uh, forced child labor um, and a variety of different issues. So that, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of thing we focus on in my classroom. With all of those conversations that, that you were able to have with, with all of those people, I'm pretty sure you use different tools uh, to have those conversations. What were some of those tools that you used to be able to facilitate those conversations just for our listeners um, that might be interested in doing that as well? Sure. So uh, when it comes to video conferencing, I mean, you know, obviously there's there's different platforms like Zoom or Google Hangouts or, or Skype. Um, I've used all of them in my classroom. Uh, but but my favorite tool for finding connections is really the Skype in the Classroom website, which is a free website that's uh, that's hosted by Microsoft. Um, on there, you can zoom in on a map and find teachers literally anywhere in the world that are willing to connect with your class uh, and collaborate. Um, when I'm doing all day workshops in schools, I often pull up a. Uh, pull up that map and show Kazakhstan. Um, and there's actually six or more teachers in Kazakhstan that are willing to connect with your class um, in real time. So, um, you know, the technology has brought the world closer together. Uh, and it's vital that we use these resources to um, expose our, our students to the world and show them how to collaborate, because that's the world that they're going to graduate into. As you've had these conversations with different communities uh really across the world, what have been some of the responses that, that your students have had in the classroom as a result of some of those conversations? Well, it's, it's difficult for them at first because it's something that's, that's novel, right? So it's always exciting. I mean, kids are always excited when we have a, a video call with you know, someone in a different location coming up. Um, and we try and make those experiences as, as in, engaging uh, educationally as possible. But, but also, uh, I recognize that for my fourth and fifth graders, um, for, for some of them, the first time they're on a call, this might be their first interaction with someone from a different country who speaks a, a different a primary language. And so we have to have conversations about, you know, when you hear someone's accent, what does that mean? Right. That's not uh, that's not something to, to laugh at or make fun of. That's you know, we should respect someone that speaks multiple languages and is able to communicate with you uh, in English in their third language. Right. Um, so it leads to some really important conversations with my kids that give them context and um and perspective on what we're learning. I want to focus our conversation a bit on on your book that's hot off the press, Flip the System US How Teachers Can Transform Education and Save Democracy. What a what a powerful title. What a, a huge endeavor 
you are embarking on. And, and let's really start at the beginning. Why does the U.S. system need to be flipped? That is a perfect question and a great place to start. So I think any any teacher who's listening will understand that right now uh, our education system, like a lot of the other systems uh, in our in our country, uh, is a strip strict top down hierarchy that is coercive. So it starts with the federal government creating mandates uh, and then finding levers and ways to force states to to comply, and then the states do the same thing to school districts. Districts do the same thing to principals. And then principals use levers and mechanisms to try and get teachers to comply. And unfortunately, too many times we as teachers do the same thing in our classroom. We use grades and other extrinsic motivators to try and get kids to jump through hoops uh, and, and do what we want them to in our classroom instead of focusing on authentic learning. And so what I'm proposing in this book, along with the 32 other amazing uh, contributors that have written chapters, um, is a flattened hierarchy and a system that is based in support rather than coercion. So it starts with us as teachers asking our students and our community, what do you need to be successful and how can we support you? And then us as teachers demanding that from our administrators, that they ask the same question of us. What do you need to be successful? How, how can we support you? And instead creating a system that is based in partnerships uh, and support rather than those levers and coercion uh, that our system is, is um, driven with right now. And the real benefit of this is that you know right now, teachers have very little voice in the most important decisions that are happening in education. And because of that, there's some severe negative unintended consequences. So when you, when you develop policy and you don't know how it's going to play out at the intersection between that, where that policy and practice meet, you end up with, with these, um, with these negative effects, right? We know that from standardized testing, we know that in a whole variety of different settings, but if teacher expertise the collective expertise of teachers is informing and driving every decision in education, we eliminate those a lot of those unintended consequences because teachers know what these policies are going to look out, uh, what they're going to look like before we even put them into place. And so what I'm advocating for is a system that is both supportive and also driven by teacher expertise. Hmm. Yeah, when you said flatten the the hierarchy, that's a very visual um, word that, that I think is really helpful for us to sort of grasp onto to what you're envisioning. Um, what are some ways we can do that in schools? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, like I said before, we can start in our classroom uh, by we're focusing on relationships, making sure that we truly understand our students' passions and talents um, and their perspectives and their backgrounds that they're bringing to the curriculum. Uh, whether that's, um, that's being culturally responsive in our teaching, whether that's making sure that the literature in our classroom reflects uh, the student population or, um, or population of, of uh, our communities outside of our schools, um, or just making sure that if a kid is really interested in a certain subject uh, and we have to teach them how to find the main idea of a nonfiction text, that we're letting them read nonfiction texts that they really care about rather than something that is mandated by a scripted textbook curriculum. Um, you know, so, so all of those things are things that we can do to give ownership back to our students in the classroom, while understanding that we are still the leaders of our classroom. We're, we're not ceding that leadership. Um, culture is determined by leadership, whether it's in your classroom, in your school, in your country. Um, and so we need to focus less on um, trying to get kids to comply uh, and forcing them to do things, uh, and more on what kind of culture can we build in our classroom where uh, where kids have ownership over learning. Uh, and then once we do that, we can expand that to the school and district level. Uh, there's a great case study uh, in the book that's written by a teacher from Pennsylvania, Tracy Fritch, um, 
who shows how the Sanger Unified School District out in, uh, outside of Fresno, California, has developed an entire model where uh, teachers drive the decisions in that, uh, in that school district. Uh, they're a high poverty school district, uh, majority minority, uh, a lot of um, a very high Hispanic population, uh, had terrible test scores, not that I think that's a, a wonderful metric for us to use to, to measure the success of a district, um, but their scores uh, by that metric were terrible. Uh, and after instituting this distributed leadership model, uh, they closed equity gaps, uh, both among, uh, you know, kids in poverty and different, uh, different, um, you know, uh, different economic or, or different um, demographic groups. Um, but more importantly, if you're a, a superintendent and you're listening to this, uh, their, their property values went through the roof in the last decade because they became a desirable school district that people wanted to move into. And so this is just a, a microcosm of what we can do if we flip the entire system. Uh, educational outcomes become better. Uh, our schools become better. They become uh, places that students and teachers want to be in, uh, and our communities embrace them. And that's really the kind of education system that all of us want. Let's let's go back to the classroom with that example that you provided, right? Um, let's allow students to select literature that, that they're interested in, that reflects who they are, that reflects their culture, mm -hmm. okay? A teacher wants to do that but isn't sure how to go about that process. What, what would be some good first steps for, for that teacher that's listening and they're nodding their head and they're, they're agreeing, but, but they're not sure sort of where to start because they've never done this? Let me take one step back further and, yeah. then, and then we'll dive into that question. Right. Because I think one of the places where we've gone wrong as an education profession is we often teach in, in isolation. Um, and we, we haven't developed networks uh, to be able to help us navigate through these things. Uh, I know one of the things, you know, I was, I was really good at being a mediocre teacher for the first half of my career. My kids sat in rows. They were on task when you walked in my classroom. Uh, there was decent classroom management, but not a whole lot of classroom empowerment. Uh, and the thing that changed that for me was starting to network with other teachers. Once I discovered the power of social media uh, to connect with teachers outside my local area uh, and to really understand best practices and um, share ideas and bounce ideas off other people. Uh, and so, you know, if you're looking to do this kind of thing for the, for the first time, uh, it's really critical that you get in touch with other people who have gone through this and tried this and, uh, and failed and learned from it mm -hmm. um, and are trying new things. Uh, and so building your professional network is something that's really important. Um, but, but in addition, there's also already built professional networks who have started to curate resources around these things. So I know the National Network for State Teachers of the Year um, has published a list of uh, culturally responsive books. I'm not sure if that's what they call them, um, but books that would, would fit the curriculum in this way that you could introduce into your classroom. Um, so that's one place to look, but I'm sure there's, there's others out there. Um, but find teachers who have done it um, and you know, start networking with them. That's great advice to, to get started, um, you know, utilizing the, the many years of, of research and work that, that others have done and sort of joining hands and, and coming together and supporting, getting support and then supporting others. I want to zero in on a phrase within your book, save democracy. Do you feel like our democracy is being threatened? Yes. Um, I, I don't think there's any question. And it's not just American democracy, uh, by the way. You know, we as Americans tend to be pretty... Uh, pretty self-centered and, and looking, you know, if you turn on the cable news, you see, you know, it's 99.9% .9 domestic. Um, it's, it's not just an American issue, although it certainly is an American issue. Um, you know, uh, there's a rise of authoritarianism and, and dictatorship and um, suppression of democracy around the world. Um, you know, Turkey comes to mind um, down in, in South America. There's a couple different examples. Um, but yes, so 
you know, when we look at the reason why, I think, I think, you know, there's no doubt that we are hyper-polarized as a society politically, uh, that we have lost the ability to have nuanced and respectful conversations when we disagree, um, uh, that our democracy is inclusive of, uh, of everybody. Um, I don't think that's necessarily happening right now. Uh, and so I, I think we can point back to our education system uh, and see where we went wrong. Right. So in, in education, we very rarely have uh, have controversial political discussions uh, in our in our classrooms because teachers are afraid of having those discussions because it might, you know, it might get them in trouble. But if we, you know, uh, I like to say, and I, th- I think I even mentioned this in my chapter that I wrote in the book, you know, a lot of our school mission statements talk about the need to develop good citizens or um, contributing members of society. We phrase it different ways, yeah. but we can't we can't create or, or develop good democratic citizens if our schools and classrooms are places where democracy is absent. And so if we don't ever allow for political discourse or debate uh, and kids don't learn how to have nuanced and respectful conversations, if we give students no say into how schools or classrooms operate and never let them learn from making mistakes or, or going through the decision-making process, we can't magically expect them at the age of 17 or 18 to graduate and be good citizens. We haven't given them the tools to be able to do that. Um, and in addition, you know, if, if you look at uh, like the, the equity gaps, the equity issues that we have in education in the United States, and we in Pennsylvania are among the worst, uh, our, our gaps between uh, student outcomes for um, uh, whether it comes to race or poverty in Pennsylvania are among the worst. I think we're 50th out of, out of 50 um, in the country. But you can't have a democracy where not everyone is able to participate fully. And if we believe, and I certainly do, that public education is the foundation of democracy, if there are equity issues in public education, then there are certainly going to be equity issues in our democracy, and, and it can't fully function. Uh, and so there's a lot of work that we have to do in a lot of different areas. Yeah, we've also had um, you know a rise in, in protests you know, that have gone on across you know, our country and, and really across the world. What, what do they show about democracy? Well, I mean, there's, if you look in the last decade, there's been this push for student voice, right? You know, um, uh, and, mm-hmm. and I truly believe in that. I think that's part of letting students own learning is, uh, is to allow the, their voice to come through in the educational process. Um, but we can't allow for student voice only when it's convenient. Um, part of democracy is being able to, to, um, to articulate your differences and, and your problems that you have with your government. Um, that's built into our First Amendment, the right to peacefully protest and, and, uh, and assemble. And so, you know, again, our, our classrooms need to reflect that. And so it's, it's scary to think about as a teacher, if you have a group of students that, that fully disagree with you in some way, um, and they are allowed to, um, to voice that displeasure with you, right? Sometimes it can feel like you're losing control of your classroom if you allow students to do that. Um, but that's exactly the kind of thing that we should be promoting. Um, and, and this is, you know, often the criticism of teachers when it comes to political issues in their classroom is that they're, you know, um, teaching a certain political point of view. We should never, we should never push a certain political point of view on our students, um, but rather we should allow them to find their own political points of view and to have those discussions. Uh, and that takes skill. Um, but no one ever said that teaching was easy and no one ever said that, uh, or, well, I certainly wouldn't advocate uh, that teaching should be scripted. Um, and so these are things that we need to work through. Um, and, you know, teaching is an art and the, the better we get, the more we do it, the better we get at it. So these are the kinds of things that we need to work through in our classrooms. Yeah. So thinking about the classroom, right, you've already shared, uh, you know, a couple of 
couple of examples about how we can increase democracy. But I kind of want to ask you for for another example. What's what's another example that would demonstrate democracy? facilitating democracy with within a classroom. And then I'm going to follow up uh, with a question more school-wide, right? Mm-hmm. But but first, uh, let's focus in on the classroom again. Yeah. So I love there. there's a, um, one of the first chapters in the book was written by um, Estella Owima Church, who is a teacher in Los Angeles. Um, and instead of writing about just her own experiences, uh, she actually put together a student focus group uh, and looked at uh, students from diverse backgrounds in Los Angeles and asked them, Uh, what are some of the practices that you've seen in school that allow you to be civically engaged? And what she expected, I think, is what what many of us would expect, that students would be all about um, connecting online uh, on certain social media platforms and that kind of thing. Uh, But what what they told her was the exact opposite, Um, that that, organizing online and voicing your opinion in social media was was slacktivism, but it really didn't didn't get anything done. That the teachers that allowed them to... um, to understand how to be civically engaged most, right? And I think that's that's what we're talking about when we're talking about democracy. The teachers that allowed them to, to best understand what civic engagement is are the teachers that allowed them to take the learning that happened in the classroom and to apply it to their uh, to their community directly. Um, and that community, when they were talking, was mostly their local community. So identifying issues in their, uh, whether it's racial issues or LGBTQ issues or um, issues where they see injustice in their community. Um, and being able to uh, to take the learning that happens in their classroom and advocate in certain ways, whether it's developing a campaign in their um, you know English language arts classes where they're learning how to uh, write persuasively, whether it's using their uh, art classes to um, to create visual art um, that that advocates for uh, less injustice. Um, those are the kinds of things that they wanted to do. But in di- in addition to their local community, they also increasingly understood that they were living in a global society. And that what happens in one location is connected to other locations as well. Uh, and so identifying injustice around the world. We often think of equity issues here in the United States in terms of what's going on um, with poverty or with race. Um, but we also have to understand, understand that there's self-driving cars in Pittsburgh. Um, if you call an Uber, you get a self-driving car at times. Um, but 17% of the world still lives without electricity. Uh, and so there's global equity issues and injustices that also um, students want to get in, involved in addressing. What about school-wide? What, what could be some school directives to encourage uh, democracy? So I think even just something as simple as what the norms of a school or what the rules of a school are. Um, if they're dictated to students, students don't have any ownership over that uh, community, over that school community. Um, and so allowing students to be involved in every aspect um, you know, you mentioned before, how do we choose culturally responsive literature in our classrooms? Mm-hmm. Well, if we're not including students in those discussions, yeah. um, we're one, we're doing our students a disservice. And number two, we're robbing them of an opportunity um, to do the work with us um, and to be and to be involved in creating the norms of that classroom. And so, you know, when we think about uh, decisions that happen at the classroom level or in the school level, um, we really should be asking ourselves how to how do we be as inclusive and pos- as possible um, in making sure that both teachers and students are at the table um, and have uh, not just voice but have in- impact over the decisions that we're making. Yeah, with student ownership, right? We we talk about that a lot of times in schools, but but we don't do it. Well, some don't do it. What's a way that you've seen personally uh, that's that's worked, or you've heard that's worked? Yes, that. That that worked. That built 
student ownership. Could you share one or two of those with us? Sure. I'm, I'm going to share a story from my own classroom because um, I always love talking about my students. Right. So uh, this is this is a story that happened about uh, five years ago or so, uh, give or take. So during my first week of, of being a science teacher, so maybe six years ago now, um, I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I had just been announced as a global teacher as finalist, uh, so I had this incredible imposter syndrome. I wanted to carry over some of the practices from my fifth grade classroom with, with global learning and, and using video conferencing. Um, and so we had a call with a group of kids in uh, rural western Kenya in Bungoma County, uh, and we played a game of mystery animal where it was like 20 questions, we tried to see if we could guess the animal that they had chosen faster than they could guess ours, right? It was my way of starting to introduce how to, how to uh, animal classification to my students. But afterwards, um, the school director took us on a tour of his village and he showed us a dilapidated bridge uh, that was falling apart. And he told my students that uh, kids in kindergarten, first and second grade that lived on the other side of the bridge were not allowed to go to school because the bridge was too dangerous. And that during the rainy season, the bridge would flood and any kids, even in high school from the other end of the village, would miss an entire month of schooling. And my kids were horrified. They were shocked. They couldn't imagine um, not being able to go to school or see your friends. And they said some magic words in that moment. They said, Mr. Sosko, that's wrong. We should do something about that. And I had a choice in that moment. I could have uh, glassed over it and said, yeah, that's terrible and moved on with the lesson plans that I had in the curriculum that I was handed. Um, or I could do what I, what I actually did do was go back and dig into my curriculum and say, okay, how can I teach my fourth and fifth grade science standards through this problem that my kids have identified as being important uh, and an injustice that they want to correct? And so what we did is we spent the next five or six weeks going through the design thinking process, the engineering process, um, identifying the problem, looking at our resources and, um, and constraints. Um, first, design, first students designed bridges out of paper and they tested them with pennies to make them fail and then made them stronger and better. And then at a cardboard and they tested them with rocks um, and made them fail. And finally, they drew up some blueprints uh, for a bridge. And they sent those bri uh, blueprints to a, a bridge designer in Kimalili, uh, which was nearby to the town that we were working with. And he told us that it would cost $3,500 to replace that bridge, which is more than my students knew they could fundraise in a year. But they were determined. So they had bake sales at lunch, um, and their fifth grade teachers helped them. Um, they had movie nights. We had a license to show movies, but we couldn't charge admission. So they sold popcorn, and they used the iPad that we had to uh, use a green screen technology. They would take a picture and put you on, uh, like in a picture with lions and send it to your email address for a buck. Um, and over the course of the year, they raised about $1,200, so short of our goal. But halfway through the year, I had a couple of students come to me and say, Mr. Soskel, what we're doing is really important. We're hoping you will help us design a website uh, so that we can share that website outside of the school, and maybe people would be interested in donating. And through that student-designed website, we were able to bring in an additional $2,500. And so one of the proudest moments of my teaching career was being able to walk into their homerooms the last week of school and show them pictures of the bridge that they designed that now allow every child in that village in Mukuyuni to go to school. Um, so that's, that's what it can look like when you allow student passions and student ownership uh, to drive what you do in your classroom. Um, and and to get back to the point of like, how do we do this? Yeah. Well, you know, we're often told in our pre-service classes that you should start with the curriculum and find great ways to teach it. And I think that's exactly backwards. I think we should start with experiences that make kids want to beat down the doors of our classroom. And then it's our job as professional and creative teachers to embed the curriculum into those experiences. And if we do that, kids will never forget. They will never forget the learning that happens. Thanks for sharing that. And, and thanks for doing that work. 
as well. I mean, that's that's powerful connections that that you were able to make, and in powerful ways, you were able to connect with your students, and and they were doing the work, they were engaged, uh, they had strong agency, and I also think this conversation, I know for me, and I hope for our listeners, is is giving us a deeper understanding of what democracy is, and and these examples that you're sharing. I hope are motivating and I, and I hope are enlightening as well. And, and through that, I think we're starting to look at solutions, right? Ways to, to sort of deal with this issue. And, and you've written recently that solutions developed without complete understanding of their implications at the point of execution lead to unintended negative consequences at best and intended negative consequences at worst. What would be a type of solution that you were alluding to in that quote? Yeah. So if, if you just, let's take um, standardized testing, because it's something that everyone is familiar with, right? Like every teacher, every teacher has issues with that or has their own opinions about that, right? Uh, and let's just look at right now during the pandemic. We've had this wildly inconsistent and inequitable response to uh, to COVID-19 in education um, during the end of the last school year. As we know, in Philadelphia, kids didn't even, um, once school shut down, they never really got to uh, learning new material. It was just review. It was patchwork, right? In some of our more affluent suburbs, right away, within uh, within a week, they were you know, learning new material through um, devices that they had and internet connections that were readily available. So we had this wildly inconsistent response to the virus that, that was... Uh, that provided inequitable access to education. So if we were to use a standardized test to measure uh, where kids are, or how much learning happened in the last year, um, it would give us results that are totally inaccurate, um, not valid in any way, um, but it would be easily fit into a spreadsheet, right? And so if you are, if you are a decision maker um, without talking to teachers, you may not realize just how inaccurate those, those, uh, those scores are, right? And so you may be making decisions about whether it's school funding or uh, educational programs based on numbers that mean absolutely nothing. I mean, in the best of times, uh, we are making decisions in education based on whether or not kids had breakfast, right? Now now we, we would be making decisions based on whether or not kids had internet access for three months during remote learning. Um, it's insane. But if we get to the point of impact where policy and practice meet, and you asked any decent classroom teacher, most classroom teachers, um, they would be able to tell you exactly what those standardized tests are going to, uh, are going to say months before you get the results. We, as teachers, we know what our students' abilities are. Um, we've done quick formative assessments in our classroom. We have some of assessments that have, that have told us all of those things. And so if we are able to, um, to change course, um, and provide an educational program that meets students' needs, uh, based on assessments that are much quicker and and developed locally, um, our kids' education would be better. We'd be able to better provide them with uh, equitable education. Um, and so that's just one like one example that's that's obvious. Um, but there are thousands, tens of thousands of examples of decisions that are made in our education system at all different levels um, that end up with unintended consequences because teachers weren't at the table uh, and teacher expertise wasn't driving those discussions. Um, and, I and I will just throw out, you know, um, it's important that we delineate between individual autonomy and collective autonomy. Um, mm. we, we want teachers to have some level of individual autonomy. We want them to be able to do what they think is best for kids. But there has to be some standards, right? We can't just let teachers do whatever they want because some teachers are going to do some 
some terrible things, right? And we want to prevent against that. Um, and so what I'm really advocating for is collective autonomy, where it is teachers that are developing the standards for the profession. It is teachers that are monitoring um, whether or not those standards are met. Um, and it is teachers who are driving education decisions and making sure that, that the needs of our kids um, are provided for. Yeah, I asked that question because I wanted to just make sure that people listening to this are like uh, not getting the wrong idea about solutions. So I think by you sharing that, it helped us again, get another angle of understanding that, yeah, it doesn't look like that, right? Uh, I want to stay on the path of what where you've been taking us so far in this conversation, which has been, again, uh, super helpful. Uh, you've spent about a year on this book, writing it, editing it, interacting with the material. What is something that you learned that you didn't expect to learn? So because of the way that the book is uh, is put together, um, I wrote one chapter, but there are actually 22 different chapters. Um, and the other 21 chapters are written by um, expert classroom teachers from across the United States, uh, state teachers of the year, global teacher prize finalists, uh, really amazing teachers. Uh, and then there are a handful of chapters that are written by some of the world's leading education researchers. So Posse Salberg, who helped develop the Finnish education system, um, wrote a chapter on what uh, what America can learn from international education systems. Um, there's a couple other amazing education researchers in there. So each one of those chapters provided me a perspective um, that was unique and gave me something else to, to chew on and think about. And and it was an absolute joy to edit those chapters because I had to really uh, digest what was in there. But one of the things that I don't know that I learned it, uh, I don't know if it was something that I learned new, but something that really hit home uh, for me, and it came through in, in several of the chapters, one by Josh Parker, one by uh, Michael Pena, uh, was the idea that if we're going to flip the education system, and if education is going to be driven by the collective expertise of teachers, we need to make sure that our teaching force is reflective of the students that we're serving. Um, because right now, um, you know, in Pennsylvania in 2017, there were like 4,200 teaching certificates that were handed out. Only 26 were black men. If, if we have that kind of racial uh, inequity and racial gap um, in our teaching force, even if teachers are driving education decisions, we're going we're gonna to have some um, uh, implicit bias uh, issues where, uh, you, you know, predominantly uh, white females are making decisions and they're doing what they think is best, but they're missing a big piece of the picture because they just don't have that perspective. Uh, and so diversifying our education, uh, our, our teaching force, uh, and making sure that our faculty uh, is reflective of the communities that we're serving um, is absolutely critical. And there's a couple of chapters that address that. Mike, this has been an eye-opening conversation for sure. You dove deep many times, and that's what we like here on Diving Deep EDU. As as we conclude, who do you want to give a shout out to? Yes, I'd like to give a shout out to, to actually uh, three different people. Um, so one is Yelmer Evers, uh, who wrote the, uh, he edited the original Flip the System book, uh, Flip the System, Changing Education from the Ground Up, uh, which was written in the Netherlands back in 2016. Um, but he is the one that first planted this idea of what a flipped education system uh, could look like. Uh, and then Ginny Forcucci and Josh Parker, uh, who both authored chapters in the book, um, were both instrumental in helping me shape what the outline would look like um, and some of the topics that absolutely had to be included. Uh, so all three of them, a big thank you, because the work that I did over the past year wouldn't be possible uh, without them. Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? We as teachers hold incredible power, not just in our classrooms, but also outside. Uh, we have the power to shape 
what the future of our democracy and the future of America looks like. And so don't be afraid to step into the arena and advocate for what you know is right for your students and for your colleagues. Thanks, Mike. Mike, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time, your perspective, and helping us think deeper about these important issues. And to those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning into Diving Deep EDU. If you liked this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. 